welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people to the fashion industry. It's Black History, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Martin. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Black Fashion History. As always, I appreciate you so much for joining me. It feels so good to be Black and to be talking about Black things. And today is no different. I have another riveting Black Fashion History episode that I can't wait to share with you guys. We're going to be talking all about dandies, not daddies, but dandies, okay? It's kind of similar, but not exactly. If you're listening to this podcast and you're in my audience, then I know you know who Andre 3000 is. And if you don't, then I am going to bow my head and pray for you tonight because something is seriously missing in your life. For my Andre Three Stacks lovers, he is the perfect example of a black dandy. And that's what we're going to be getting into today. What dandyism is, who black dandies are, what that style is, where it came from, and how impactful it is to black cultures around the world. So dandyism or the dandy style is defined as a man who pays great attention to fashion, overall appearance, always staying fashionable and elegantly dressed. So you see why I say three stacks is the perfect example, but it's not just about looking good. It's looking good in a specific way. I am talking about suits, ties, hats, blouses, dress shoes, hard bottoms, as we like to call them, and just having a personal style, but in a gentlemanly way. Fonsworth Bentley is another great example of a black dandy. So the modern practice of this style actually first appeared in the 1970s in London and in Paris, and not amongst black communities, but amongst non-black communities. But just like everything else, we get a hold of African people in the diaspora, black people around the world, got into dandy style and started adding seasoning and made it much better. And subcultures of black dandy started to emerge around the world and they still exist today. So for the purposes of today's episodes, we are going to talk about two distinct subcultures of black dandies in the African diaspora. And that's going to be the Sapus or the Saps of the Congo and the Rude Boys of Jamaica. And from here on out, I'm going to call them Saps because my French is not as good as it used to be in high school. And I want y'all to understand what I'm saying. So the subculture of Saps first emerged in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Republic of Congo after the arrival of Europeans in the 1920s. Congolese servants were often given secondhand clothing by their European employer so that their employer would be able to show off their material wealth by their ability to dress their servants well. This fostered an environment or an emphasis on dressing well or dressing above your class to appear in a certain light within society. Congolese veterans from Paris further kind of cemented this idea of dressing well when they brought over the ideas of Parisian fashion and the things that they saw over there, and then adding their own African and Black seasoning and flair to it, and then creating again this idea of dressing elegantly and dressing in a way that is quote unquote above your class. Since the 1920s, the culture has moved far, far, far away from 
emulating Europeans because they were seen as being more elevated or a sign of wealth or being in a higher class. And it has moved into an act of economic, political and social resistance and activism for those who participate. And of course, a way of expressing your style. Now, I love when people, especially black people, use fashion as a way of protest, a way of resistance, a way to prove a point, a way to communicate something in society. And so this is one of my favorite things about the subculture of dandyism. And it doesn't just apply to the saps of the Congo, but black dandyism in general is an act of resistance. Think of it akin to this black luxury movement that we see all across social media, where you have black men and women who are enjoying the things that society for a long time has told them that they are not allowed to have and that they should not be in, or that they are often questioned or stopped for participating in. Like how many times have people been followed around, black people specifically been followed around in a luxury store, or black men have been stopped by cops because they're driving, quote unquote, too nice of a car. Same idea here with the Saps of the Congo, the Rude Boys of Jamaica will get into, and Black dandyism across the diaspora is Black people participating in things um, and adding their own style to things that society for a long time has said that they are not allowed to have. Sapers or Saps, which stands for the Society of Tastemakers and Elegant People, but the French version of that battle poverty and economic hardships in their daily life and expressing themselves through these clothing, which are often very expensive, their luxury clothing, provide an escape to their economic reality with the appearance of wealth and it shows their equal self-worth. Again, um, it's back to that act of resistance where a lot of times society says that black people shouldn't have this and even going further into that says that poor people shouldn't have this. People with lower socioeconomic status, you know, should be relegated to certain things. Um, And this is their show of their equal work and equal value. However, in 1970, the Democratic Republic of Congo President Mobutu Seso Seiko challenged that idea as well as the resistance of saps in general when he introduced the idea of Zara Nation, where European practices, clothes, and traditions were frowned upon and seen as inauthentic. It popularized the view of embracing your own African culture and rejecting the clothing of the European oppressors. And then, of course, saps were then looked down upon and seen as conforming to the colonizer. Now, I think that's a valid point. In Black cultures around the world, we tend to view, and we're socialized, I should say, to view things of European ancestry or origin or things that have a proximity to whiteness as being better. That's what we're trained to view, like think about straightening your hair for an important event versus like wearing your natural hair. I think it's the same kind of idea. So I don't believe that it's bad to incorporate this celebration of blackness, you know, the celebration of African culture and seeing it as just as equally worthy as any European traditions or any European clothes or things that you would cling on to. I think that is an absolutely important idea to foster into society, especially in African society. And on the other hand, it's also important to acknowledge the resistance that's going on here and like the powerful act it really is 
for Black people to just don things that society for a long time has said you have no right to be a part of. So it's a two-sided coin, like all coins. And I think both ideas should be considered and there's space in society for both of those ideas because both is needed when we think about reform and fashion and life and Blackness. And on top of that, the Saps of the Congo didn't just exude like wealth for themselves to show themselves, you know, how worthy they are, but it also brought joy to people in the community. Like people loved seeing Saps, loved and love seeing Saps dressed up from head to toe in bright colors, in suits, in hats, in canes, shoes, all of the luxury clothing, it brings joy to the community. And I think that's a part that people may not understand or acknowledge. So that's why I'm happy I have the opportunity to share that with you. But just seeing, you know, people that look like you look amazing and walk around brings joy to the community and people love it. Again, you know, black joy is also an act of resistance. Of course, the SAP style and subculture largely revolved around men. Historically, while Congolese men were beginning to dress after European fashions, women continued to wear traditional Congolese clothes because they did not have the same jobs as men. So they could wear their traditional clothes instead of the dresses and the skirts of European women. Also, they didn't have those same jobs where those employers are giving them those hand-me-downs. So different expectation of like showcasing wealth. However, now the style has evolved to include women, even though they've come into it at a later date and they're using it to form their own messages and to communicate their own thoughts about their place in society. Like their male counterparts, they use dress as a way to rise above their present economic standing. And with them, there's also an added layer of showcasing that they are of equal standing and value to their male counterparts. There's also sexism involved, not just economic or classism or racism. They also use this form of dress as a way to have control over their body and the way their image is presented to other people with sexual violence as something that many women deal with and many Congolese women deal with. Dressing as saps gives them a way to have control over that, their image, and communicate who they want to be and, again, share that they are of equal standing to their male counterparts. This is how they make their statements about their bodies. If you remember Janelle Monet when she first came out, she's a great example of what many of the Congolese saps, the women, look like. So she dressed in her black and white all the time. She was suit and tied up. Hair was usually the same, pinned up. She had her hard bottom shoes on. And she performed that way because she wanted the focus to be on who she was as an artist, on her performance and not on her appearance or her sexuality. Now she has grown past that and we know her as an artist. So she's able to express herself or she chooses to express herself in other ways and other form of dress. But when she first came out, that's what she communicated, that she wanted the focus to be on her artistry. And women 
who are part of the SAP subculture kind of approach it similarly. You know, they want to make a statement and have control over their bodies. They don't want to be seen or overly sexualized. And then, of course, they want to make a statement about their economic standing and they have joy in the way that they dress and they style. They love wearing the suits and the hats and everything. And they love just showcasing themselves in that way. This is why they dressed as equally as extravagant as their male counterparts. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, you want to really get a good picture, make sure to head over to blackfashionhistory.com. I'll have images so you'll be able to see saps and what I'm talking about when I speak of the way that they dress. You can also follow us on Instagram at Black Fashion History Podcast. I'll also have pictures up there as well. In a nutshell, for Congolese saps, both men and women, it's all about creativity. So a phrase that's coming among the subculture was popularized by Papa Wemba, who's a rumba musician from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who popularized sap culture in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He said, white people invented the clothes, but we make an art of it. And like I said at the beginning, everything that we do, we put a little sauce on it, put a little season on it. You know, so Europeans may have popularized this trend in the 1700s, but baby, we came in, we put a little pepper on it, we put a little season, we put a little sauce on it, we put a little suya on it, and we made it what it is and we use it as a way to continue to make our voice known, express our confidence and show the world, you know, who we really are. So moving on to the second subculture of black dandyism in diaspora, we're going to be talking about the rude boys of Jamaica, a little bit different than the saps of the Congo, but similar in that using dress as a way to communicate thoughts and resistance and of course being stylish in the process. So the Rude Boys started off as a cultural movement among youth stemming from the dissatisfaction with poverty and unemployment following Jamaica's independence in 1962. If you take a listen to Bob Marley's song, Simmer Down, you'll hear him talk about and describe Rude Boys because it was a big subculture in his day, a big movement. And they were known as the sharply dressed young men with violent and antisocial behavior. Unlike the Saps of the Congo, who were inspired by European fashion, Rude Boys adopted their style and persona from American fashion, mainly American jazz musicians, Hollywood, and portrayals of gangsters and bad boys in all of our movies and things like that. So think about Scarface and I guess things like Goodfellas. I'm not 100% sure about that because I don't know when that movie came out. But think about the gangster portrayals. And then also think about the way a lot of our black jazz musicians and Hollywood stars of that time were always dressed up. It was either a gown, a suit, a tie, very sharply dressed, always looking like you're going someplace nice, never seen or very rarely seen dressed down. I'm Thinking about people like Nat King Cole with the sharp suits, the pork pie hats, the shiny shoes, the whole bit. 
In the 1970s, Rude Boys were also associated with the rock steady music, the ska music, ska, S-K-A. All my Jamaicans out there, please let me know how to say that word because I don't think I'm saying it right. But that was the genre of music that the Rude Boys were associated with. Now, unlike the Saps of the Congo, while it was sharply dressed and fashionable, way less extravagant, way less extravagant and not so much focused on luxury or like this idea of showcasing a wealth that has been told to them that they can't obtain, but a way of disconnecting from what was happening in their society at a time and then emulating a society and things that they loved. Through immigration in the 1970s and 1980s, rude boy culture found its way to United Kingdom because of Obviously, the Jamaican diaspora introduced the culture, the fashion, and the music to the UK, which influenced the culture of the UK. It started to influence the style of Englishmen and also made its way into the music. If you go back and do some research on some popular bands in the UK at the time, like The Specials and The Clash, other bands of that nature started incorporating Rude Boy sounds into their music, the terminology into their music, and of course, into their dress. Outside of music, Rude Boy subculture was really a sartorial way to kind of give the proverbial middle finger to the law and express this bad boy persona. But Also project individuality and your attitude through your style of dress. So it's just another way that black people in the diaspora use style to communicate what we're feeling, what we're thinking. While Rue Boys weren't behaviorally the role model or like positively viewed, I think it's important to address, you know, their fashionable contribution and how they use that to communicate the attitudes and some of the behaviors that was frowned upon and how it is a form of black dandyism. And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you loved what you heard, and I know you did, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting platforms and on all social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. Don't forget to visit us online at our website, blackfashionhistory.com. And of course, if you don't do any of that stuff, make sure to tune in again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye.